Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, Euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm David Weston and joining me once again are Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hall of Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, how are you doing? Good. How about you, Jan? I'm doing fine. Busy week. Lots of things going on, uh, including a big conference on solar. Um, so I'm looking forward to to go there and we will record another episode there that will come out after this one. It will indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to um, record that at Solar Power's Summit. Um, but instead of solar power today, we're talking about wind power. The wind sector has been on a cost-cutting journey for decades now. Uh, but as one of the cheapest forms of electricity generation anywhere in the world, the pressure to continue cutting costs continues, which is placing significant strain along the sector's whole value chain. Surely with the focus on energy security and the energy transition, now should be the time of significant accelerated deployment and growth in the wind sector. But many manufacturers have fallen by the wayside in recent years, and those still standing are struggling to make ends meet. Uh, just last month, Trade Association Wind Europe announced that orders for new wind turbines were down 47% compared to 2021. Danish OEM Vestas told investors in January that it would suffer a weaker year, and Siemens Gamesa said the industry was facing serious financial challenges. And GE in America reported revenues in its uh, renewable energy arm were down almost a fifth. A similar story can be seen up and down the supply chain. So what has gone wrong? What needs to change to unleash the wind sector's fortune? Our guests this week are best placed to tell us. They are Ben Backwell, the CEO of Global Wind Energy Council, and Morten Deerholm, the group senior vice president at Vestas and chair of GWEC. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. Nice to, great to be here. Pleasure. Pleasure. And, and Morten, perhaps can you give a little bit of background with your um uh, experience in the OEM sector, what has caused these difficulties? Why are the major Western OEMs specifically really struggling at the moment? Well, there are some um, immediate factors. And then, uh, as, as Ben is saying, there are some structural issues in, in the industry that we need to deal with. I think for us, sitting where we are in the value chain as, um, as an OEM, I mean, there's no doubt that the cost inflation has uh, caused havoc. Uh, it's not just raw materials and components, uh, it's also a transport cost. Uh, we've seen lots of delays also on, on components during COVID and the post-COVID uh, uh, situation. Coupled with that, you have increasing interest rates. Um, I mean, it's just costs going up all across uh, um, the uh, the value chain. And that, of course, is, is causing some significant headaches when you are install in projects that uh, basically were signed as deals the two or three years ago uh, and the business case for those projects have changed uh, during that period and uh, so so that's the immediate effect you're seeing now uh, we're all trying to raise our prices and get back in black as we say we will get there this is turnaround as ben is saying but it's uh, but it's going to cause some hard work and we need we need some some policy makers now to to listen very very sharply to what ben and i are saying uh, you've both worked on wind energy for quite a long time, and I remember well 
when wind provided only a relatively small amount of electricity, so less than 1% of total electricity generation in Europe. And we're now at 15%, according to the Ember European Electricity Review that came out at the end of January. So we have now some countries you know, like Denmark, where a significant share of electricity is from wind. Could you just describe sort of how this huge shift and the increase in wind power in the power sector, in your view, has affected the perception of wind by policymakers in Brussels at national level, maybe even global level, and in the energy sector more broadly? Are we really interested in hearing your views on that? Yeah, maybe I, mean, maybe I could go first. I mean, the paradox here is that everybody loves wind power. Right? And there's there's really good reasons for this. I mean, it's by far the best way to decarbonize you know, power systems in terms of the efficiency of it, right? And it's a mature industry. We've brought down costs to the point where we're way more competitive, uh, certainly than fossil fuel and nuclear, and pretty much compete can compete against any power source around the world, right? So this is the paradox, and policymakers around the world want more and more wind power. Um, so I guess the, the fact that um, companies actually find it hard to make any money out of the sector is a, is a real is a real problem and a real paradox that we need to to fix and and I think we should dig into that um a little bit more but um just I mean just to set the context I mean we've grown spectacularly and we um you know as you say Jan we're a major part of power systems now across Europe but also across many parts of the largest economies um, in the world our growth has accelerated we are kind of up to the kind of around you know, 100 gigawatt a year of installations. Um, we're about to hit the first terawatt of wind power, which is a really historical, um, you know, kind of moment. Um, and that will happen sometime mid this year. It's taken us 40 years to get here. Now, according to all the scenarios of IEA and IRENA and BNF and people like that, we'll hit the second terawatt somewhere kind of around 2030, 2031. So it's a, it's a huge acceleration. So I mean, I want to first of all set the context. This is a this is a success story um, for the for the world, and we're we're very very happy to where we've got to now. Are markets working correctly at the moment? Definitely not. I mean, it, you know, it can't be that when we're trying to have an energy transition, the companies that need to invest in more industrial capacity can't make any money. That's not going to work, and it can't be that you know we're seeing these enormous windfall profits for oil and gas uh, companies um, at a time when we're trying to give. The right signals to the market to carry out the transition. So there's clearly something that needs to be fixed here. Ben, why why are we not? Why are you not making any money? So Martin already has said it was uh, the costs went up. Uh, some of it pandemic. I saw it's going down again already a little bit. What are what are the reasons are there? And I'm particularly hoping that you would also say a word on. Um, on the ongoing discussions in Europe uh, on the market design, no, that I guess you probably also had in mind when you when you spoke that you said that's not a good moment, shaking up, no, shaking up the fundamentals in the market uh, for the longer term investments that need to come. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, let, let's look at a couple of the issues. So, I mean, I mean, first of all, we're not able as an industry to build at the pace that we need to build, right? So there's big restrictions around permitting and planning, everything takes it takes too long. So you've got a kind of restricted market. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got governments running uh, tendering and procurement schemes, uh, which are basically aimed at squeezing more value um, out of out of the uh, renewables industry. And we have this in a situation, like I said, very paradoxical, where in fact, 
we're way we're way more competitive than fossil fuel. And in fact, with the higher period of higher oil and gas prices, we're more competitive than ever. Now, have costs gone up? Yes, they have, as Morton described. And, and that's not just for wind energy, right? That's for everything. You know, you may notice if you go to your local supermarket, it's more expensive. I mean, it's not. This is this is you know the return of inflation, um, and it's something that's hit the wind industry. What but what we have is a restriction in um, being able to expand, and often we have tender systems that are based around forcing the price down even further uh, when things are getting uh, more expensive. And, and we've seen some tenders in Europe now where nobody shows up. Um, you know, one one country in particular, Spain, had a tender. Uh, recently, a few months ago, I think that it was it was probably about five percent of capacity um, was actually offered. Uh, why? Because they had a very low price cap um, and no indexation to inflation. So, you know, if you're signing on a 15 year contract for a project, why would you do that when you know you're going to get hit by inflation and there's no way of recovering your money? So, I mean, it's just an example, but pretty much everywhere we see schemes that are designed to push prices down even further and which restrict um, uh, really the, the flow of projects and investment um, at a time when things are getting more expensive. So I, th- I think there's a real there's a real um, issue there with some of the market design. But it's not all, again, I mean, it's not all dark. I mean, you know, we're seeing some ex- extremely exciting developments. I mean, on the one hand, a continual push for higher ambition and higher targets. And again, that's that's the paradox. I mean, it, and, and if you reflect that in our forecasts, our forecasts get more, you know, bigger and bigger all the time to reflect these government uh, targets and and then we also see some regions and countries taking very very strong action to accelerate things and I mentioned particularly the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which is a really different approach um, I think to the European approach. It's basically an incentive led um, approach, which is you know you can access across the board if you you know if you if you're building projects and 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 building a, a supply chain as well. Um, and we think that's really changing the game and another regions and countries, if they want to keep up, are going to have to do similar similar things. Uh, the IRA, definitely something we want to come back to. I just want to uh, touch on your point about the uh, auction systems uh, that you brought up there, uh, Ben, and how do we go about redesigning auction systems? Do they need to be redesigned? Is there a case of, I know the, the Netherlands have done some interesting work there in having an auction system that's not purely price-driven? Is that something you want to see more of? Um, are auctions the way forward? Do they need to go back to the uh, days of um, feed-in tariffs and those sort of uh, systems? Oh, Morton, one for you, I think. No, I think at least uh, design... I mean, we have to rebalance the industry somehow. And policymakers, when they design an auction system, they need to to ask themselves and in consultation with the industry, how how can we actually make a viable business case out of these deals? And if the if the sole concern is as Ben says, uh, you know, a f- you know, s- s- super hardcore focus on on low cost, low cost, or even negative bidding, as we've seen the recent offshore uh, tender in, in Germany, or even in Denmark, as we 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 see concessionary payments where they the government expect you know developers and utilities to pay upfront a huge amount of money just be able to to build the project. Then you squeeze so much value out of the uh, projects that it's very hard to see a business case. So we have to transform uh, the auction. So there is a there is a price signal that actually meets the current status of affair in the industry, uh, taking into consideration both inflation, as Ben is saying, but also the real cost of actually building these projects. Um, and then somehow you know change the narrative around us being sort of a cash cow 
that the governments can continue to draw money out of, uh, start looking at what is actually the value we're creating uh, and put a price on that that actually, you know, um, merits the value that we come with. And we, and I think Ben and I, we're probably guilty of uh, over the many years that we've been in this game also, uh, you know, pushing the policymakers into this corner of just focusing on low cost because we were so hell-bent in the industry of proving that we could become more cost competitive or more competitive than fossil fuels. Now we've done that. Now we're vastly more competitive than fossil fuels. So now we have to start looking at the value we're actually also creating because the, the consequences of just focusing on driving down cost is that nothing is getting built. Uh, and that's why you see what you see in Europe now with, with the decline in oil and tech. It is simply because business cases are no longer stacking up. So we have to rebalance the industry and come up with an auction design that actually meets the value that we create as an industry. And who can beat the value proposition here? Targeting climate change, creating energy independence, lower consumer electricity bills, creating jobs. I mean, there's an, we create so much value and we have to start talking about that value and not something we give away for free, but there are actually people that has to innovate, build, construct, install, et cetera, et cetera. And that all cost money. Uh, so, and as Ben is saying, it's frustrating to look at a fossil fuel sector that is raking in you know, record profits uh, for, for destroying the planet. And the ones uh, such as us that has to actually create the transition, we're getting you know, punished uh, like never before. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I'm always saying like, I mean, the renewables for years, they had the pressure to become living on the market. Once they live on the market, you pull the rug underneath them. You know, I mean, it's really unfair treatment. But Morten, I, I'm glad you also said that you're partly also to blame because what I observed in the, in the lobbying tactics of the wind industry was a certain pride, of course, of this cheap, uh, of this quick cost reductions. But maybe you've been overselling a little bit this kind of, wow, another net zero bid, because in a way, it's like wind energy is for free. And I'm sorry, an offshore exploration is a massive infrastructure. How can this be for free? Free, you know, where are the boundaries? But I, I think it's a good opportunity now to change uh, with the IRA, which indeed. I think let's the let's the you question a bit how we approach things so far. And you were under pressure from the policymakers, but I think this is changing now. And just to give you an example, for example, where things already look like going into the direction we just discussed, in the leak of the commission, it will be coming out with this net zero clean and industry plan, no? Where wind is one of the focus sectors, which I guess you will be happy to hear. Um, where they actually also go into this direction, uh, if you do, uh, if you have other merits, then these things can be factored in in public procurement contracts, for example. So this is exactly going into this direction. Um, yeah, and happy to hear what you say. Whether this is enough, um, I'm just generally a bit nervous when I think how far, like how soon we hit 2030 and how many windmills on and offshore we still need to build in Europe. Martin, you particularly, are you confident this turnaround that Ben said will come quick enough? Because it's a lot. I mean, it's like six-fold capacity for offshore, for example, right? I'm, that we need in Europe. I'm very confident when I'm looking at the US, when I'm looking at markets such as Brazil, uh, Korea, uh, Southeast Asia, Australia, uh, those kind of of areas, I'm very confident that we will see a, a huge rush now because they're getting policies um, right in a sense. 
Europe, I'm 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 not very optimistic because um, the beauty of the U.S. IRA is that they stimulate both supply and demand with that kind of policies. And in Europe, you know, majority of what I see is somehow a green industrial plan stimulating supply. But if you don't fix permitting in Europe, and if you don't fix your auction regimes, then that that makes no sense to me. You know, we we have to you know, vastly increase the speed of installations in Europe. And um, with the current policy directions, I don't see it. Uh, it takes eight years on average, some most places in Europe to get a project built. Uh, that that's that that's gonna make sure that we're not gonna meet our 2030 target just just on the permitting side with 80 gigawatts stock right now in administration and seems to be moving nowhere. Uh, my own country, Denmark, is a very good case in point. You know, we had uh, 13 gigawatts of offshore plant, it's what are called the nearshore projects. And with the blink of an eye, they were ripped away and and uh, thrown in the in the trash bin, uh, out of some obscure EU regulation that were used as an excuse. Uh, and uh, the other projects, they will have, you know, offshore uh, national tenders will have ten years from now on and until we see the first uh, turbine spinning. And that means Denmark won't meet its twenty thirty targets because uh, onshore wind is is completely stalled out of the same challenges that the rest of Europe is facing. So. Uh, I'm not very optimistic. You know, it, it, there's a lot of policy confusion going on right now in, in Europe. On on that point, we actually had Giles Dixon from Wind Europe at our event at Euroelectric in December, where we talked about permitting for quite a while. And he made the, the same point you made, Morten, that we have this huge issue with permitting that's that's holding back deployment. And Giles had some a slide, I think, with the amount of wind stuck in in permitting right now, which is absolutely huge, I can't remember the exact number that he um, that he mentioned, but it was it was very significant. And uh, since then, has anything changed? I mean, we had Repower EU announced in in May last year. There was significant emphasis on you know cutting permitting times by a very significant amount. Has has anything changed? Are you seeing any changes in in Europe in terms of permitting? Well, you have uh, at least at a uh, Brussels level meetings around how to fix it. Um, there are nice words around limiting uh, permitting to six months for onshore and a year for offshore. Uh, there's the um, EU emergency regulations to try and get member com- countries to to speed up their act. Uh, but so far, nothing has happened. It, it still requires some 36,000 pages of documentation for three turbines in in uh, in Germany and 40 plus uh, transport regular you know permits just to get the turbines from one place to the other. So, you know, fixing all that uh, should be the main priority for for European governments right now. Um, we could we could see Germany they could build two uh, LNG gas plants in seven months. Uh, the question is, why should it take seven or eight years for, for wind, wind plants? Um, and, and honestly, we should all be very angry. We should all be angry that this is, this is actually the state of affairs in Europe right now, because that is the number one thing that holds us back. Uh, and we have to yell and scream about that until someone listens. But how do we go about then s- streamlining the permitting? Is there anywhere that perhaps uh, in the world, uh, obviously you're a global wind energy council, so maybe you've got some insight on where in the world they're doing it right, and permitting is actually streamlined, but still um, covering the the relevant sort of issues that it needs to cover. And if I may add to David's question, because you said the US does that, but I haven't seen an IRA anything addressing permitting. Correct me oh. if I'm wrong, but they are not That's addressing right. that either. 
That is correct. I mean, the uh, permitting yeah. timelines in the U.S., depending on the state, can still be quite quite long, but it's not nearly as long as is as in Europe. Uh, there is a separate permitting uh, reform bill trying to move through Congress that will address that. Uh, hopefully, that will get voted uh, uh, through over, over the course of the year. So at least uh, I cross my fingers and hope that that will be the case. But in terms of best practice, I mean, uh, you know, the way uh, ideally uh, you would just implement the, the EU Emergency uh, Act on, on permitting. You look at your rules saying, OK, we need X amount of gigawatts in the ground or in the sea by this amount of time. Backtrack what needs to happen. Uh, run uh, the different parts of permitting in parallel processes and mandate your municipalities to, to get it done by a certain timeline at the necessary uh, you know, uh, bureaucratic resources that it has to handle these processes and then get, get moving. Uh, it, you know, it, it, the funny thing about this permitting issue is everyone makes it sound like it's very complex, but, but, but this should actually be one of the easier things to correct. And, and the fact that it's not being done is, is, is infuriating to me. Is the issue of um, go-to zones something that you're interested in, in following up on? I know that was a lot of discussion, um, I think a recent wind Europe event that I attended, uh, and having specific areas where wind development can be accelerated, especially onshore. It's obviously you can get away from, from permitting uh, one turbine or one project, but you can actually uh, take an entire area and say, we do one uh, sort of big permitting uh, on an entire area and then call that an energy island on land or whatever, that's at least the term they use in Denmark, uh, and then get that going. But uh, I think the first time energy islands in Denmark was mentioned is a year and a half ago. And the team that, you know, that has to do this has not even been assembled yet. You know, and it, it's something, you know, it's these things, you know, you know, maybe I should just be a politician and fix it myself, but it, it, by God, how, how difficult can that be? Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Obviously, there's been some success in the offshore sector by having that. You know, the UK set different area. You know, the the Crown Estate and and the uh, National Grid kind of set up zones where offshore wind projects can be developed. And I think Germany have a similar system. Like, so it's it's worked uh, in other sectors. Granted, at sea, it should be able to be replicated on on land. I don't know if you want to talk to the success of the UK, Ben. Look, I mean, I think in general, I mean, I I, I endorse what Walter said. I mean, I, I think. Often we overcomplicate here. I mean, where there's political will to go out, define these go-to zones, things can move pretty fast. Um, and we've seen that um, around the world. I mean, and like you said, David, I mean, that's that's kind of what the Crown Estate did in, in the UK and, and got things moving. I mean, it can, it can be done. Um, and we, you know, we see onshore, you know, India, India now is moving to trying to define some very kind of big kind of, you know, areas for kind of mega projects onshore. Obviously, China did it in, the, in, in its kind of development around the wind bases. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely an approach which I, I think makes sense in, in a lot of places. Um, but you need to get get down and do it. And like you said, not just create more talks and more processes so that that you know so that land in itself takes another ten years. It's it's about get, you know getting on with it. And then there's you know a lot of measures which 
um, our you know colleagues around the world have, have proposed around you know simplifying simplifying the process itself, um, uh, you know digital permitting and all those kind of things that people like Wind Europe have been uh, have been working on. Um, and then there's the you know just the legal uh, kind of onus as well, uh, which is yeah which is often the key thing, just you know key planning statements um, and, and prioritization within planning um, and and favoring. Um, um, you know, strate- you know, strategic move towards the energy transition, and and I think that that's that is an important point. I mean, you know, we have a lot of discussions around you know planning and, and spatial planning and how we interact with other stakeholders, but we are talking about the energy transition here, and, and it does need to be kind of reflected in planning as something that is top priority for society um, and and humanity. Now, that doesn't mean that we kind of run you know roughshod over communities or. Um, environment, you know, environmental um, concerns. Um, on the contrary, but again, you know, where where I think governments and planners put the work in, and where the industry puts the work in, these things can be worked out, and and they can be advanced. And I think what I think what we're going to see in the coming period. I mean, till now, it's been a lot of people um, competing for a limited amount of areas, um, but I think with the IRA and with all these new countries coming into the game. We're going to see countries competing for investment um, and for um, you know capacity and for industrial capacity and for skills and for jobs and um, I think you're going to see what we can refer to as the competition of regulators, um, where the country that have the countries and regions that have the most efficient regulators and the capacity of the regulators to be able to move things through processes in a reasonable way. Those are the ones which will benefit from investment. Um, and from jobs, and I, and I really think we will move into that kind of period. Um, and I think the IRA, in that sense, again going back to it, has kind of put a bit of a cat amongst the pigeons because you realise in you know five years' time it won't just be Europe and the UK doing a lot of offshore. It will be Japan, it will be Korea, it will be Australia, may even be Brazil soon, Colombia, um, and, uh, and India starting its offshore, and so on and so on. Um, and, and in the past, you know, we've seen investment and people just kind of move from one tender to another. You know, what happens when everybody's doing tenders, when everybody's going to try and be attracting investment? And I do think the conditions will will start to change um, because people simply won't show up to tenders if you if you can't make any money out of them and if there's no visibility on on planning. I'd like to ask you a question about local opposition because this is something something for off, onshore at least. It's it's become a major issue in 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 many different places that you have local locally organized groups that don't want uh, any wind uh, near them and they yeah they tend to be quite clever in putting forward their case also through the legal system I, i'd just like to hear a little bit more from you to what extent are the legitimate local concerns and to what extent at least i have read is there also a coordinated effort to use local groups uh, to uh, essentially block wind uh, entirely because they're forces at play here that just don't want any wind deployment whether onshore or offshore um, i mean for me for me there's two there's two things here first is that wind has shown over the years that it's overwhelmingly popular um but that doesn't mean you're not going to get a few people who object to it in in different local contexts right and we've seen that in many places around the world in europe and and but also in the us and other places in australia um some legal systems allow one or two individuals to effectively mount a legal challenge at government expense that can hold up wind wind farms for years. And I do think that in many cases those are not um, representative of the feelings of you know communities as a whole. Um, 
So, you know, legal systems definitely, you know, need to be set up in a way that, you know, people can move on sensibly with community support uh, without having just a few uh, people block projects. And and sometimes these people are, you know, activist groups with particular agendas. Um, and we've seen that, you know, in Denmark and the UK and other places, the same people show up time and time again. Um, they're not exactly you know, kind of representative local community activists. Having said that, it's really, really important that we work with communities. And, you know, one thing I think we could be doing better as, as a renewables industry as a whole, not just wind, but all of us, is is kind of engaging with communities much earlier um, and involving communities in the project um, um, in, in some way that is not just about the kind of jobs um, uh, potential for communities and the communities for uh, you know, potential to take part in the wind farm, but also models around, you know, co-creation, around co-equity, around revenue sharing. And there's a lot of work being done on this. A lot of work is being done on this um, around the world. And I think it's, you know, if you can get communities to be on your side right from the start and to see the value um, in what you're doing, I think that that's that's really, uh, really, really important. And then, I mean, just on your last point, Jan, I mean, we've seen a wave of activism in the U.S., um, now around onshore, but now also around offshore. The evidence I've seen, a lot of that points to kind of pseudo campaigns, which are being funded to some degree by bad actors um, from the fossil fuel industry. And we know there are you know actors in the US that specialize in setting up um, so-called grassroots campaigns that look like grassroots campaigns. Um, and there's also a lot of uh, misinformation out there um, which again, I mean, I think is systematic in some cases. It's something that the wind industry and the renewables industry needs to engage with and combat in a really active way. We we can't be naive here. Um, we can waste a lot of time with the energy transition through the, the actions of a few uh, bad actors um, using algorithmically algorithmically enabled you know mechanisms to spread disinformation, setting up pseudo campaigns, and so on and so on. So we we shouldn't be naive here. But I think the overall um, message here is that we have the overwhelming amount of public on our side, um, and, and in fact, growing support over the years. And we need to we need to utilise that. We need to uh, take advantage of that support um, and, and build really solid relationships with communities wherever we go. I can definitely see. I've seen data from the areas in Europe where they there's already a lot of wind installed, and you can see um, the approvals for. Wind in my backyard has actually gone up quite significantly ever since uh, Putin's war of aggression, um, because they can see there is a direct link now between the amount of wind power in the system and the you know how how low the electricity bills get, and I think that just that simple uh, explanation to people that there is a direct correlation between the amount of of wind electrons in their system uh, and when they have to turn on the charging of their uh, appliances, uh, that that has already given a boost, and I can see there you know. Uh, that there are some some few, and I would say few, very noisy uh, anti-wind uh, people, uh, but allowing them to block projects for the benefit of the vast majority of the Danish population, I think is unfair. So we have to make sure that they are listened to and we hear them and we engage them, but they cannot be allowed to hold off you know, projects for years on years because of litigation. So we have to find models where speed becomes incentivized somehow in the system. Uh, without you know just running over people's legitimate uh, complaints, uh, I will say there is a quick fix in many areas in Europe. If you if you make simplified re, uh, repowering permits, for example, we can actually take out 
more than half of the Danish turbines and probably also vast majority of the turbines spinning in Germany, uh, which are outdated technology. And you can take out half of those turbines and allow new ones to get built, uh, to get constructed on the same sites with simplified permitting. Uh, and, and then you actually have fewer turbines and, and you know, uh, double or triple the amount of, of renewable electrons in your system. So there are also ways where we can lessen the impact uh, by just simply deploying the new technology. I'm surprised how much we spend on permitting. And I was also surprised to hear Morton being still so negative about the EU discussion because I actually felt that was solved or is being solved. You mentioned already this temporary regulation and there were the rules now um, also in the revision of the Renewables Directive. And I always felt like you also said permitting is the easy fix. And I actually always felt the big hurdles here are, I wrote them down, supply chain tightness, the skills that actually the skills as the mobile part where also the IRA could lure away from Europe and the grid, that the grid doesn't, the, that the wind energy is much more, how do I say, constrained by how far the grid will be developed, even more than the solar, no? I would say. So uh, I don't know if we could move on also to those uh, topics, but I was surprised that uh, that you're still so unhappy because I actually felt the Brussels did what they could, you know, Martin. What else can they do? They cannot go to the municipalities. We are, we are a company that very much is on the ground. Okay. Ah, you should smile even now because Ben said this is the year that it will be turned around. But I'd love to understand a bit more the supply chain issues because that's what's being discussed a lot. And uh, I mentioned already the commission will come out with a proposal next week. Um, so uh, that would be great. Uh, and basically what I read is there is a tightness and that the EU basically knew already when they drafted the offshore wind strategy in 2020 was it 2020 i think so 2021 we saw already where no where where the bottlenecks are and i guess again the ira also has put us on the spot and now um the the eu commission is aware there's the vessels for example i read that in the whole world i don't know if it's true there are currently only three vessels that can carry the biggest wind uh, wind turbines out in the, into the sea is that true The, the biggest ones that are on the market right now, and that these are the bottlenecks plus the skills also. And yeah, great, I already mentioned, so I'd love to hear more about that from you. If I, if I could, if I could uh, Michaela, and I mean, I think you raised some you know, really important points there. I mean, just to you know, put some data around it. So, you know, 2022 was not a fantastic year uh, for the wind industry for the, for the reasons Morton outlined. 2020. Three, we'll see a, um, a recovery in the order books. 2024, 25, it builds. And by the time we get to 25, it's 2025, we see a real takeoff um, in many regions um, around the world. We'll see onshore wind being above um, 100 gigawatts on its own, offshore wind being above 25 gigawatts. Um, and our analysis and, and our global wind report um, this year, which we'll release at the end of this month, is, is really about supply chain and, and what's happening with supply chain. And what it, what it suggests is that both Europe and the US will run into supply chain bottlenecks, particularly around offshore, pretty soon. Um, and the, you know, the reason for this is that there hasn't been 
um, the investment certainty and the investment conditions for for people to go out and invest at the right level and with the right level of kind of aggressiveness, right? Um, so you know, again, because of this paradox, we've kind of under underinvested in um, manufacturing for wind energy. Certainly compared to China, which is probably the only place where they have actually invested sufficiently in manufacturing um, capacity. So, so we're in this situation where the market will start to speed up. We will see bottlenecks unless we act, um, you know, really quickly to make sure that the manufacturing sector can invest at the right pace. Um, and then we also have a complicating factor, which is that regions around the world are trying to reshore and diversify their supply chain. Uh, because we have a quite high level of dependence on China, um, particularly in some key components uh, like gearboxes, but in many, many things as, as well. Um, so you're trying to scale up a supply chain for a new level of ambition. You're also trying to reshore and create um, kind of more, um, you know, kind of conditions around what comes from local industry. There's also initiatives to reshore parts of the kind of upstream supply chain around critical minerals um, and metals. So all this is happening at the same time. Oh, and there's pressure to make our supply chain more sustainable um, and circular economy. And there's been some very interesting develop developments on that side. But all of this requires a lot more investment. Um, so I, I can see you know, some regions of the world, particularly Europe, running into real problems uh, with not having sufficient supply chain uh, to meet its ambitions. And that's a real, that's a real problem because you know, we're, we're going out there and telling policymakers that they need to accelerate the transition. Policymakers are, are creating higher, higher ambition and higher targets. And are we going to run into a situation where we then say in a couple of years' time, well, actually, sorry, guys, we don't have enough equipment to be able to do all this. That would be a real pity. So I'd really urge you know, policymakers you know, to get in a dialogue with the industry and with other industries as well to try and make sure that we actually get this right and, and get the conditions right to be able to invest right now to be able to be ready for what's coming down the line in, in, in a couple of years' time. I'd like to uh, just follow up on one uh, issue, um, Ben, which you mentioned is the circular economy and sustainability. And I think this is a question for Morton, because Vestas announced a few weeks back um, some fairly major um, advances in recycling of wind turbine blades, which I saw being sort of shared widely on social media and in the news. Uh, I'd just be interested to hear a bit more about that because yeah, one of the arguments used by you describe you know, these people using algorithms and trying to create negative noise about wind turbines is often that they say uh, you know, all these wind turbines will just go to landfill and and clearly that's that's not necessarily the case. So I'd just like to hear a bit more about what what Vestas is actually trying to do or has already achieved uh, and how this will impact the industry more broadly um, in terms of recycling circular economy. But I think you're right, Ian. I mean, it has been one of the arguments put forward also by sometimes as Ben called them bad actors that, you know, all the resources um, that has to go into building the turbine and the waste afterwards and the, the landfill argument, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, vast majority of that is simply misguided and and uh, and uh, simply false. Um, but we had one sort of uh, big uh, issue in the circularity, which correctly was the, the blades. And, and that discussion, we wanted to crack. We wanted to make sure that uh, we paved the forward, a way forward for the industry to come out and be fully circular, circular also on the blade, because the rest of the machine uh, already today um, is fully recyclable. Uh, and, uh, and we're in a good progress as an industry. 
to to get the circularity around the turbines. But the blade was the missing part. And uh, I think with this uh, breakthrough that we announced, and that I also think that was why it was so widely shared because um, it 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 was that missing link in 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 our circularity roadmap. So it was extremely pleasing <laughs> to get that piece of information out. And I think for everyone in the industry, it was really a, a day of of uh, rejoicing because th this seemed or this is going to be the breakthrough on on blade circularity. Uh, we have now found a way found a way to uh, to separate all the elements in the blade and then fully recycle um, the elements. And the good thing about this is that I mean, even you know, with the few blades that have landed in landfills, with this technology, we can actually dig them up if we will and uh, recycle them because this technology can be used for, for legacy blades and also all the new blades coming out in the market. And I think that was what we were missing <laughs> to paint the whole picture. So in that sense, it was a really, really good day for, for the industry. Will the increase of circularity uh, and the reuse of materials um, help the wind industry and specifically wind manufacturers, again, sort of, I don't want to say cut costs because they've already been cut costs quite a, uh, quite a lot, but sort of, Extend the margins basically, and help, especially in the current year and the current the current crisis that they're they're suffering. Help those balance sheets, um, and also on top of that, will sort of greater uh, standardization across turbine manufacturers also help balance that shift a little bit? Yes, and we're working super hard to try and minimize the the, the use of materials. That's that's a, a given because that's of course not just a circuit argument; it's also a cost argument for us and a business case argument. Uh, so, and and the good thing about our industry is that we're still a fairly young, uh, even though we are mature as Ben says, an industry. There's still lots of innovation in front of us, and and that you know makes the you know improvements um, on on circularity happen on a daily basis. I would say. Um, so so in that sense, you know, it's fantastic. Um, uh, what was the other question? Um, a little bit more about standardization across the across the industry. Yeah, I mean, there are, we have been making some progress among the OEMs here, but obviously it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a difficult and a long-term discussion. But I think I do think standardization across certain types of components will help us, just as we have seen in the auto industry. But again, uh, I think the, the most important thing now is to take a little bit of a break for, for the ever, you know, um, you know, need to, to come out with new platforms all the time. Because in reality, what it is about right now is not building the next 25 megawatt turbine. What it's about right now is to standardize, uh, to create efficiencies, make sure that the bottlenecks that we have in certain parts of the value chain, such as vessels, uh, can keep pace with the development of turbine platforms. So, I mean, we've been quite open investors out saying, okay, you know, we have what we have now. The, the, mo the focus for us is not to create the next 25 megawatt monster because how, how does that make any sense? You know, the, the, you know, we, we don't have the supply chain ready for that. We don't have the logistics ready for that. Cost will only go up when you go up to sizes like that. So we'd rather try to focus on modularizing, standardizing and industrializing. Uh, and that's really what the focus is for us. And I think that's the right way forward. We need to have a little breathing room now in the industry and actually create those efficiencies on the platforms we already have in the market. Oh, so that means uh, 15 gigawatt, that's it for the time being. And we are plateauing and you're catching up with the rest of the... We are never done uh, creating new technology. Uh, so we're not out saying we'll never come with an upgraded version of our 15 megawatt. But uh, but what we clearly want to say to the market is that, you know, that's what we have on the shelf right now. So let's please focus on making that efficient. Oh, that's interesting. And obviously megawatt, not gigawatt. 
<laughs> big enough big enough as it is i just wanted to quickly touch on another um european initiative that might have an impact on the industry and that's the carbon border adjustment mechanism obviously um you, you, you've mentioned the sort of um a lot of the components are reliant are on chinese production or maybe even asian production um does the CBAM, uh, especially covering steel mainly, um, will that have an effect on the sector? Could that help onshore a lot of production uh, and incentivize that uh, investment? Or say if the prices in the auction systems follow suit. I mean, if you just increase cost again for the supply chain, then obviously you need to make sure that the, the price that are paid for the end products also reflects that. But otherwise, I mean, I, I, I think there are some sound thinking behind the CBAM that, that we can support. Mm. And could there be perhaps some uh, collaboration here with the US on green steel procurement and, and those uh, and other working with other nations in, in that sense and, and in, in a bit to both green steel and, and decarbonize steel and other materials, um, but also protect domestic manufacturing as well? Absolutely. And I, I do hope that the EU-US trade the agreements will, will start picking up again, because if we could somehow create a good environment for manufacturers in the EU US we're in a, we're in a good we're in a good space and incentivizing production of green steel is to say and that's a little bit the chicken and the egg here you know who wants to be the first to offtake the expensive green steel uh, to allow volumes to come up and then we need some kind of both collaboration but also i would say government intervention to get it started i have a question for ben if i may um and that is uh, on Countries that have currently not deployed a lot of wind, you know, we've talked about Denmark, the UK, Germany, countries that have your know, long history in wind deployment and have ramped up quite quite quickly and have installed already quite a lot of wind. But there are also countries in the world that have next to no wind or actually zero wind. And it'll be interesting to hear maybe from Ben's perspective, what can countries that want to deploy more wind rapidly actually learn from those places that have started a long time ago, what, what are the key levers they can put in place to make this easier? Uh, just this morning, I saw that Slovakia is now uh, going for wind. Yeah, that was reported by Euractiv. And there are many other countries too. So interested in any lessons learned that you can share from your work around the, around the world on, on wind? I'm just going to say other than a streamlined permitting process. I think, I think um, yeah, keep it simple, um, keep it ambitious. Uh, create transparency about where you want to go. I think those are still the most important things. I think um, the discussion around you know local content is something that's going to run and run, um, and and how to ensure that you get um, local jobs and investment in the best possible way while also being efficient. I think that discussion has got a long way to run, and that's going to be the, the crux of it for many many places around the world. Right, um, everybody's going to want to see some benefit. Uh, from the wind energy revolution, everybody's going to want to see jobs, and we we totally get that as a as an industry, right? Why why wouldn't you? Um, but how do you do that in a way so that not everybody's just replicating what someone else is doing next door? Um, you know, look at look at someone like Asia, for instance, on offshore. You know, everybody wants their own supply chain, right? Korea wants its own supply chain. Japan wants it. China's already got it. Taiwan wanted it. Australia will want something. Um, Vietnam will want something and so on and so on and so on. So how do you do that in a way that you create you know, regional economies of scale, you do things in the most efficient way possible, but that also you know, you're, you're, you're able to create value and jobs and education um, around that. I think that's really the work 
that we've got cut out for us now as an industry is to get that balance uh, right now when we go out in the world. Um, you know, in the past, I mean, think of it this way. In the past, the wind industry used to be quite opportunistic and we'd basically go where there was some regulation that allowed us to go and build something quickly. Um, now we're going to see everybody building um, and it's really, really important that we get this right and do it in the right, you know, in the right way so that it creates, you know, lasting value and lasting, you know, social support for what we're doing. So, you know, we're moving into a kind of new era where we need to be you know responsible we need to be engaged with a lot a lot more you know stakeholders and much more engaged in in political and social uh dialogue and and also working with other, other technologies right we can't i don't think we can just position ourselves anymore just as a technology you know we need to be a solution you know for for the energy transition and for the energy system of, of countries and regions right and it's and it's you know it's, it's it's no good i was just talking about things without talking about grids as as michaela mentioned it's no good as you know just posing wind energy as a solution for everything when we we're going to need solar we're going to need green hydrogen we're going to need other um energy systems as well so i think it's it's all about being a more having a more mature dialogue um and being this kind of confident global industry and and so if we can get this regulation right and if we can get governments to be designing systems in the right way so that we can actually you know uh, make some money out of this and invest um then I, then I think we've got the kind of skills and the energy to be able to do this so um, I'm, I'm very hopeful about the coming period but we need to up our game and be much more sophisticated in how we present it yeah i guess it's part of uh, growing up right ben i mean i mean we when we started back uh, many years ago, we were still very much a niche player in the energy sector, right? And and now we have to be, uh, you know, the big kid in the class and uh, and also act accordingly. And that requires that we upgrade our skills also in in what Ben and I are doing in in, in our political dialogue and our stakeholder dialogues. And then we are, you know, up against the fossil fuel sector that has been around for a hundred years and have enjoyed uh, subsidies for the same amount of period, um, and have very very entrenched interest and also uh you know strong lobbying teams and money behind it and um so as a sector as an industry uh we have to step up the game now and realize we had a different a uh, different place yeah really interesting and some uh really interesting thoughts there um just quickly uh, we all ask all of our guests uh if they could uh look into their crystal ball uh what would uh what would the what does the energy transition look like in 10 to 20 years time what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time um would you be able to, Morton, maybe just quickly give your viewpoints on that? What are your, what's your vision of the of the energy system? I think we, uh, at that point in time, I think just ten years out, we are way beyond the uh, uh, should we or should we not uh, discussion. Um, I think at that point in time, it's absolutely clear that there is a viable technological and also financial way to fully decarbonize the electricity system. And I think in 10 years or 20 years time, we are also fully on our way to decarbonizing the broader energy system. Um, I mean, there, there's no turning back. The energy transition is here to stay and it's going to accelerate despite all of the challenges that we have talked about today. Uh, the path is pretty clear. Uh, and uh, um, many geographies in 10 to 20 years time will already be at 100% green electricity uh, and will be way, way, uh, ahead of the curve in terms of greening the transport industry, uh, also the harder beta sector because green hydrogen will accelerate within the, ne the next uh, three to five years. Um, so we will see all of this come together. And that actually makes me hopeful. And that also makes me realize that there is still, there's still a chance we can make it within the two degree uh, 
there's actually still a, a, te- a chance. If we can just get up to a point where we can actually deploy just existing technologies at scale and speed, uh, then we can do this. And that that's what makes me um, go to work every day. <laughs> it is that belief, core belief, because if I look back when I started 16 years ago, man, we've come a long way already. So with the acceleration that, that is happening now, I'm sure we could do that uh, 16 years in, in yeah. five. Yeah, really interesting. Um, before we all go then, uh, quickly run around the table and um, say uh, what caught my eye in the last week, just a little uh, news item or a press release or a report or something that really made you um, set up and pay attention and something that you want to share with our listeners. Um, Jan, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, for me, it was a report by Amber on how fast deployment of different clean energy technologies happened in 2022. Uh, you know, that includes solar and wind, heat pumps, EVs. And it just showed that we deployed things uh, a lot faster than previously thought. Um, and also their outlook for 2030 is much more optimistic now than what you know, we have agreed at EU level in the targets. So that that report is one worth looking at. I think it's it's pretty uh, optimistic, pretty inspiring, encouraging. So I, that that's one uh, for sharing. Yeah, really interesting report. Uh, Michaela, how about you? What caught your eye this week? Um, the signature of the UN Treaty on the High Ocean, on the Deep Oceans, mm. which was 20 years in the making. Uh, I saw it because a friend who was actually negotiating it in New York posted about it. And literally, I mean, I people told me that back then, it took them three years to negotiate the negotiating mandate. So actually, it's a big step. And I think it's also nice in these times to that that uh, the planet could agree on something because multilateralism is not exactly in fashion these years. So I've, I thought it was some nice news in these turbulent days in a way. And I mean, yeah, we talked about the oceans, but I think that's not the parts of the oceans where our windmills would go. So, but still, I thought it was interesting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting uh, that they finally got that over the line. Uh, Morton, how about you? Anything that caught your eye this week? Yeah, I was in India uh, last week, so I'll, I'll take my outset in that. And uh, during that uh, week in India, they announced the first four gigawatt of offshore, as Ben was mentioning. Uh, and to me, that's just another showcase that the offshore sector, the offshore wind sector, is globalizing and it, it's moving very fast. Uh, so that was a really uh, that was a really good moment. Uh, great. Uh, and for me, I saw a really interesting. Uh video on Instagram. Um, uh, It was from the New Scientist uh, magazine in the UK, here in the UK. Um, And it was uh, a tour around a a futuristic house uh, development project that they're they're building here in the UK. Uh, And one thing that really interested me, which I don't know, Jan, maybe you're interested in as well. um, They put the heat pump in the loft in the attic of the house um, with a little sort of vent going outside as an air source uh, heat pump. Um, and yeah, they put it, I guess, really interesting for buildings that perhaps don't have much as much outside space. I'd love to see that. <laughs> I'll send you the link uh, and uh, our listeners will be able to find it in the show notes as well. Um, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Ben, who uh, has had to rush off, uh, Morton, Jan and Michaela. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Jan? I'm on Jan Rosenau. Michaela? At CitizenSane1. Uh, and Morton, you're on Twitter? I am. Uh, in Duhon. Just find me there. It's been a pleasure to be part. Thank you, Morton. And thank you, Ben. Uh, if you have any questions for the team, uh, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>